Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the morning of Christmas Eve, 1859, and at the Olympic Theatre in Melbourne, female pedestrians Margaret Douglas and Beverly Howard are getting ready for an epic showdown. These two women are going to walk a match of 1,500 miles in 1,000 consecutive hours. That's farther than any woman is on record as having walked in such a challenge. It's to work this way. Beverly will start at 7.35 this morning and she'll walk one and a half miles, needing to be finished by 8 o'clock. Then, from one past eight, she'll walk another one and a half miles, needing to finish by 8.34. Margaret will then start walking at 8.35 and need to cover three miles over the next hour. Then, it'll be Beverly's turn again, and so on, for the next 41 days and 14 hours. This staggered schedule means each contestant will have the opportunity for a full hour's rest every other hour. Even so, this is going to be gruelling beyond imagination. For a shilling, spectators are to be admitted on the hour for an hour, which will give them a chance to see both competitors in action. Then the Olympic Theatre will be cleared so a new batch of customers can get a look. Margaret and Beverly are advertised as each having been backed to the tune of £200. So, it's winner-take-all in a female pedestrian face-off unlike anything seen anywhere before in the world. I'm Michael Adams and this is the second and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's First Sporting Heroine. Picture the scene in the Olympic Theatre on Christmas Eve, December 1859, as Margaret and Beverly shape up for this massive challenge. What do they say to each other? and to their supporters. Do they have any particular warm-up rituals or superstitions? Were they dressed for comfort, or had they donned colourful costumes for the audience's entertainment? 
You'd think two incredible pedestrian women who'd each set records in just the past few months match walking 1,500 miles over 1,000 hours smack bang in the middle of Melbourne would have been impossible to ignore as a news story. But the city's male journalists, editors and publishers, they were up to that challenge and they imposed a near-total blackout in their editorial pages. Three examples help show the difference a year and a gender made in terms of reporting or not reporting such events. On the 4th of January that year, the Argus had reported that this very venue had been crammed with 500 to 600 people to watch the culmination of Alan McKean's exciting 1,000-mile walk. The Age's coverage at the same time included the detail that on every morning of his long journey, Alan McKean had imbibed a gin cocktail and when he was close to the end of his ordeal and unable to eat solid food, he'd taken an egg beaten into coffee in order to keep going. Bell's Life newspaper's coverage of Alan had gone as far as to actually report the names of his six-member support crew. Margaret Douglas versus Beverly Howard? They simply weren't newsworthy. Almost all of the scant available information we have comes from advertisements in the very newspapers that refuse to provide editorial coverage. On the 26th of December, a notice in the Argus set out the details of this, quote, wonder upon wonder. The advertisement relayed that Margaret had walked her first day's distance of 35 miles in a total of 5 hours, 56 minutes and 5 seconds. That was pretty close to 6 miles an hour. Beverly, though, had done even better, doing the 35 miles in 5 hours, 36 minutes and 40 seconds. So with day one done, Beverly was 20 minutes ahead. On the 30th of December, The Age printed what was clearly a three-line press release that called the match a, quote, very extraordinary pedestrian feat and gave the basics of the challenge. This was six days in and The Age wasn't going to provide any sort of progress report. The following day, its competitor, The Argus, published this same brief article, word for word, and likewise added nothing to it in terms of developments. On the 5th of January, The Age ran a brief article that noted, on the previous evening, Margaret and Beverly had each walked 415 miles and, quote, both were equally confident of their powers of endurance. The Bendigo advertisers speculated that if both made the 1,500 miles, the match would be extended to 2,000 miles. Quote, Miss Howard is a much stronger looking woman than Mrs. Douglas, who, however, had already distinguished herself as a pedestrian of no mean order. Brief reports also appeared in two regional Victorian newspapers and in the Sydney Morning Herald. From there, though, we only have advertisements. A notice in The Age on the 9th of January read, Great female pedestrian match, third week of the unexampled and extraordinary feat. The Argus ran an ad on the 21st of January that proclaimed the ladies would hit the 1,000 mile mark at 8am that very morning. So, did they? Did Margaret and Beverly make the 1,000 miles and then power on towards 1,500? We don't know. All mention of the match, articles and advertisements ceased abruptly. Clearly, the match was over. But how and why had it ended? Though each woman was backed to the tune of £200, there's a good chance these stakes had been significantly exaggerated to generate excitement and inspire widespread punting. Both of these would boost box office, a share of which would then go to the competitors. 
My guess is that, like Alan McKean in Sydney, Margaret and Beverly had called off the race because admissions were disappointing and they weren't going to earn enough to subject themselves to another two weeks and 500 miles of exhaustion. The other possibility was that theatre owner George Coppin, who'd supposedly at one time been Margaret's husband's boss, made the decision and paid them what they were owed so they had no cause to complain in the courts. That's the thing, though. While the newspapers had reported the minutiae of Alan McKean's walk, they didn't give any information whatsoever about why this incredible match had ended so abruptly. If the Margaret Beverly showdown faltered not because of their capabilities, but due to insufficient audience numbers, then it's worth asking how much of that came down to newspaper coverage or lack thereof. As we've heard, the newspapers were openly hostile to such female pedestrianism. We find another good example of this one month before the 1,500-mile walk, when Margaret set about a new challenge at Back Creek, now known as Talbot, 33 miles north of Ballarat. Here's how The Age reported this on the 29th of November. Quote, Mrs. Douglas, the female pedestrian, is at Back Creek, about to commence the task of walking 500 half-miles in as many half-hours. Surely it is time such exhibitions ceased. Had The Age, along with The Argus and Bell's Life, offered the same frequency of colourful stories and affirming commentary afforded to Alan McKean, it follows that the Margaret Beverly 1,500-mile showdown would have enjoyed healthier box office, and their match may have even reached a world-record-setting conclusion. Instead, as far as I've been able to establish, this aborted match marked the end of competitive female endurance pedestrianism for decades in Australia. Beverly Howard, a.k.a. Miss or Mrs. Peel, disappeared from the record as quickly as she appeared. Margaret Douglas, she would walk again, just not there and not then. Margaret popped up in May 1860 as a witness in a Melbourne drunken assault trial, noted by the age as being, quote, the celebrated female pedestrian. In December 1862, Margaret was herself before the city police court after making a disturbance in the street and being charged with drunkenness and destroying property. The newspapers noted her pedestrian feats of years past and said that the charge was dismissed without fine, quote, in consideration of the good character she had borne. Margaret Douglas next appeared in the papers in August 1864, on the same pages that reported President Abraham Lincoln had called on half a million more men to beat the Confederacy. But these weren't Australian newspapers. These stories were in the English press. On the morning of Tuesday the 2nd of August, Margaret got ready for her latest 1,000-mile challenge by donning a colourful outfit of floppy hat, blouse, kilt-over knickerbockers worn with stockings and laced boots. No sense not dressing to impress when you were a colonial woman performing at the Royal Alhambra Theatre in London's Leicester Square. An advertisement in the Morning Post billed her as the Great Australian Pedestrienne, which was true, and claimed she was, quote, the only female in the world who ever attempted the feat, which wasn't. William Wilde, proprietor of the Royal Alhambra, would have been responsible for these advertisements and he likely gambled that newspaper readers wouldn't remember that a few bloomer pedestrians had done 1,000-mile walks a decade ago. Later proceedings revealed that Mr Wilde had engaged Margaret's agent, a Mr Lewis, on the basis of a weekly payment. 
The amount wasn't made public, but it was only contingent on her walking her allotted miles. Of course, if Margaret Douglas had backed herself in wages, then she stood to make more when she won the match. Success might also bring other walking engagements. Mr Wilde had ordered that a plank platform be built around the Royal Alhambra's auditorium. It was just above eye-level height, and this circuit extended around the seats and then across the back of the stage. Margaret would need to do 19 laps to complete one mile. While she was undertaking her 41-day, 16-hour walk, nightly entertainments were to continue. So patrons who paid to see singers and comic acts would watch them while Margaret was part of the entertainment strutting around her platform. Punters who just wanted to see the walking woman could pay sixpence for admission from 8 in the morning until the night shows were about to start. And to ensure that all was above board, after the theatre closed, from 12 at night until 8 in the morning, Margaret's progress was going to be monitored by a representative from the Sporting Life newspaper and a representative from the London version of Bell's Life. After Margaret started her walk on the morning of the 2nd of August, a journalist from the Morning Advertiser would pay her regular visits. An article on the 6th referenced her Australian exploits, though, strangely, she was only credited with two of her three 1,000-mile walks. The Morning Post also explained how these challenges worked, in that Margaret would stagger her walking to get 90 minutes rest every other hour. This meant, quote, sweet, gentle sleep, though coming at frequent intervals can never pay more than a flying visit. Unlike most of its colonial counterparts, the Morning Post was impressed by Margaret Douglas. Quote, we have dropped in to see her during the last few days and have taken her time. We still see the same light and easy action, the same rapid and springy footfall, and the same quiet air of confidence which struck us when, on last Tuesday morning, she commenced her arduous undertaking. In terms of her bona fides, the paper said everything seemed in order, with the theatre doors open day and night, and members of the public, press and police in frequent attendance to, quote, satisfy themselves that one of the most extraordinary pedestrian feats ever attempted by a woman is in course of accomplishment by Margaret Douglas. The era newspaper was charmed also, saying the next day she had a, quote, gay and smiling face and the light elastic step of a wild fawn. The era added that she was doing her walk with as much ease and sang-froid as Captain Barclay might have displayed if taking a gentle stroll through the streets of London. On the 9th of August, Arthur Munby, the famed London diarist, photographer and chronicler of working women's lives, visited the theatre. He wrote in his journal that day, quote, Dined after a warm bath and went for 10 minutes, about 7pm, into the Alhambra to see one Margaret Douglas, an Australian, who is there walking 1,000 miles in 1,000 hours. A boarded stage, one nineteenth of a mile in circuit, has been built around the centre of the hall, high enough aloft to exhibit the performer, and upon it the woman was pacing as I entered. A stout, sturdy little woman of 43, dressed in a wide awake, a loose white shirt, a red kilt with a pair of knickerbocker breeches underneath, and red stockings, no petticoats. Round and round she went, like a wild animal in a vast cage, walking about four miles an hour, taking no notice of anyone. A dozen visitors or so were looking on. At every round, the umpire called its number. At the 19th, he called up and Margaret Douglas marched straight off the stage and disappeared for an hour. 
she has been walking for a week. A monotonous, almost ludicrous performance shows power and last, however, and that is why I went to see it. By the 12th of August, Margaret had done 250 miles. The Sporting Gazette on the 13th said she could still do a mile in less than 15 minutes and, quote, it is now scarcely doubted that she will accomplish the 1,000 miles in a 1,000 hours. A correspondent for the London Star dropped in to see Margaret on her 393rd mile and tried to imagine what life was like for Margaret now that she was three weeks into her task. Quote, Of all the strange ways to make money, this is one of the strangest. Fancy pacing round and round that ghastly building every hour for six weeks. What different phases she must see it in. At night, filled with noise and tobacco smoke and hundreds of gazers. Then empty but reeking with the fumes of the bygone entertainment. Not a creature awake, but the watchers and the timekeeper. And the wiry little woman on her never-ceasing round. And then the day, with its weak, half-admitted light, and its occasional droppers in. How she must know every inch of the walls. Or does she never look at them, never see them, but walk on mechanically in a kind of hideous dream? The Home News for India, China and the Colonies newspaper reported, quote, On August the 22nd, the lady had completed one half her arduous task and appeared, after her 500 miles walk, as fresh, buoyant and active as when, 500 hours previous, she commenced her extraordinary task. A scribe from the ERA newspaper returned on the 28th of August to sample the evening's variety entertainments, and variety was the key word. There were selections from a new Italian operatic company along with minstrel singers. There was a juggler keeping aloft knives and blazing torches and a father-son gymnastic contortionist act. Also bringing down the house was another Australian, a Mr M Bond, who would balance on his head atop a tall pole and, while up there, upside down, drink a glass of beer and smoke a cigar. And while all of this was going on, Margaret Douglas was doing her laps on her raised platform. The era said, quote, Mrs. Douglas walks the mile while the ordinary performances continue and does her 19 times round the building in a quick and decisive manner, suggestive of anything but failing strength. At the end of her undertakings, she will literally have walked more than the distance for she comes down to the front of the stage after finishing each mile and bows to the audience. On that same day, Lloyd's weekly newspaper said there were no fears of her failing, but it did raise the question of entertainment value. Quote, the interest of the performance is certainly not very great, or rather, the curiosity is soon satisfied. But still, there must be interest and curiosity in seeing the heroine of so strange an experience. Irish newspaper The Cork Examiner wasn't buying it. It was far more sceptical and mocked this, quote, English popular entertainment as pretty much the worst thing ever. Comparing it to the confined monotony of being on a prison hulk combined with the exhausted monotony of a forced march in chains on a road in Siberia, the paper admitted that Margaret Douglas's undertaking was perhaps less censurable than female tightrope walkers and less objectionable than ballet dancing. Nevertheless, the Cork Examiner said, this was London's shame that such a dreary feat had been permitted to go on for five weeks now. Quote, he was an undertaking which tested nothing and developed nothing except the mere capacity of a woman's frame to endure monotony and weariness, which had nothing in it beautiful or inspiriting or even exciting, which was stupid to look at, 
which no one could contemplate for quarter of an hour without an abject sense of depression, and yet there must have been people found somewhere to encourage this sort of thing, to spend money on it, and to make it pay. We have little respect for wager feats of any kind, but this seems to us the most spiritless, vapid, and senseless which has ever come under our notice. This article, what we'd call today an epic takedown, went on and on. But Margaret Douglas, she didn't go on. At around five in the afternoon on Friday the 6th of September, Margaret was preparing to walk her 825th mile. Mr Wilde's nephew came in and told her the show was over and he ordered workmen to dismantle the platform so Margaret couldn't walk any farther. Meanwhile, the theatre's cashier allegedly assaulted Margaret's agent so he could seize the book in which every mile had been recorded and signed by timekeeping witnesses who'd been employed by Mr Wilde. A notice was put up outside the theatre that said, quote, Mrs. Douglas, not having fulfilled the stipulations concerning the match, Mr. Wilde considered it necessary to stop its further progress. This wasn't true. In fact, Mr. Wilde had only paid Margaret for the first week, though she'd now walked five, and she and her agent had already made application to the sheriff's office to force him to pay the rest. Mr. Wilde had coughed up another week's pay and supposedly made arrangements to make good with the rest. Instead, he pulled the pin and removed the evidence she'd performed her task as agreed and in good faith. The day after this outrage, Margaret went to see Magistrate Mr. Turwitt. She wanted to know what she was to do. Mr. Wilde's conduct, she said, had been the source of great injury to her because it had stopped her from completing her task and it might also prevent her from booking other such engagements. The magistrate advised her to get a solicitor. She did. The same magistrate, Mr. Turwitt, heard this lawyer's argument, which unfortunately centred on the missing book belonging to Margaret's agent. When told by the lawyer and the agent that this book was valued at £200 for the information it contained, the magistrate said that the matter was then beyond his jurisdiction and had to be dealt with by a superior court. Mr. Turwitt was paraphrased by the newspapers as saying, quote, that the feat of Captain Barclay was a trifle compared to what was alleged to have been done at the Alhambra. Captain Barclay was a powerful man and a noted pedestrian. The lady who was before him the other day was apparently a small person of no remarkable powers. Newspapers said Mr Wilde was disappointed with the box office and so he'd pulled the platform from beneath Mrs Douglas. That might have been the case, but he also didn't want to pay her what she was already owed and any bonus she might have been due when she finished. What's also possible was that Mr Wilde was acting to protect punters who might lose big bets if Margaret succeeded in walking the 1,000 miles. As we're about to hear, female pedestrianism could be a cutthroat game. The Clare Journal and NS Advertiser on the 3rd of October sympathised with Margaret's plight, which, in the end, wasn't resolved by a superior court. Quote, Whatever may be thought of such performances, or the taste of those who get them up or patronise them, it seems hard that the poor woman, having walked to within sight of the prize for which she was contending, should without cause assigned have been prevented reaching it. Through Mr Wilde's actions, Margaret Douglas had been denied her chance to be the first woman in England in a decade to walk the thousand miles into thousand hours. 
It had also stopped her from being the first woman on record to have done this feat four times. But the publicity surrounding her abortive attempt was to inspire a woman named Emma Sharp. She started her 1,000 miles on Saturday the 17th of September 1864 at grounds connected with the Quarry Gap Hotel at Bradford, where a 120-yard course had been staked out for her. Emma was about 30 and she dressed like a man, checked coat and trousers, white waistcoat, laced boots, turned down collar a big drooping straw hat that was decorated with a white feather and other feminine adornments was reported as the only indication that she was a woman. Margaret Douglas had been undermined by a treacherous theatre owner. Emma Sharp was to encounter even more sinister interference as her walk attracted huge public interest and many heavy bets. It was later reported that saboteurs had thrown burning embers at her drugged her food and tried to attack her with chloroform. As Emma closed in on the finish line, a friend walked ahead of her at night with a loaded rifle as plainclothes police mingled with the crowd to catch crooks intent on stopping her short. Emma herself carried a pistol at this point, which she'd fire into the air occasionally to show she meant business. Fair enough too, because when she finished her 1,000th mile on the 29th of October, just before dawn, she pocketed a £500 prize. While Emma was still fending off very bad sports, Margaret Douglas was putting her troubles behind her and preparing for her next 1,000-mile challenge. This time, she'd do it at the American Opera House in Liverpool for proprietor Mr Myers. He constructed for her a platform in the theatre, 14 laps of which would equal one mile. As the Morning Post described her, quote, This remarkable old woman got walking on the 25th of October. The newspaper clocked her first mile in 12 and a half minutes. Quote, she is a little, somewhat wizened, but muscular woman and has the utmost confidence in her ability to complete her task, which will occupy about six weeks in execution. When Margaret's Royal Alhambra walk had been abruptly stopped, at least one newspaper said the lack of public interest was because there hadn't been sufficient proof that she was doing her night walks and that her timekeepers perhaps weren't trustworthy. To guard against such allegations this time, every mile of Margaret's walk at the American Opera House was to be independently witnessed by visitors. On the night of Monday the 5th of December 1864, the plucky Australian started her final 14 laps. She stopped every now and again so she could dance for the crowd, which was said to be several hundred strong. And these people erupted in cheers when Margaret crossed the finish line. The Liverpool Mercury the next day reported, quote, at the end of the last mile, the pedestrian, who did not appear to be at all distressed by her wonderful performance, came forward and was loudly applauded. She said she had completed her task successfully and was prepared to walk one or two hundred miles more. If any gentleman thought proper to support her, she would undertake to walk fourteen hundred miles within the same time. The Sun on the 7th of December had this to say. The remarkable woman has gone through the arduous feat with astonishing freshness and vigour. Margaret's remuneration wasn't publicised, but it was noted that several heavy bets had been decided by the outcome. Compared with the Australian newspapers, the English press had taken far more interest in Margaret Douglas. 
yet their knowledge of female pedestrianism wasn't extensive, and it doesn't seem they bothered to interview the latest champion properly. If they had, they might have reported that Margaret Douglas had done three Barclay matches in Australia, and with this latest one, she was now the first woman recorded to have successfully walked 1,000 miles in 1,000 hours four times. Over the past six months, Australian newspapers had occasionally reprinted extracts from London reports about Margaret's adventures. These were presented without comment or acknowledgement of her Australian career, almost as if, after just five years, no one remembered. Maybe they didn't because coverage in 1859 had been so scant. Even if the men editing these pages didn't remember who Margaret was, rather than celebrate her as a colonial woman made good in London, they sometimes actually cut references to her being Australian. The last of these reprinted English news stories appeared in mid-February 1865. After that, Margaret Douglas vanished from the Australian newspapers. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So, who was Margaret Douglas? As we've heard, there are enough newspaper reports and advertisements to tell the story of her pedestrian achievements. But the press record is frustratingly light on personal details. While Australian newspapers had been content to describe her as middle-aged, London papers in 1864 said she was 42 or 43. Back in 1859, the Geelong advertiser had said she was a native of Doncaster in Yorkshire, and this was also repeated in the English papers. Margaret was reported to have borne seven children, of whom three were living. Her husband, whose name wasn't given in reports, was said to be a paralysed pantomimist. As you can appreciate, this is not a lot to work with, but it does point to one woman. The 1841 English census, as found at Ancestry.com.au, lists just one Margaret Douglas, then living in Yorkshire, who fits the age range. She'd been born Margaret Loney at Sunderland in County Durham in 1822. The 1841 census had her living at Lookout Hill in Monk Wearmouth, Yorkshire, with a man named John Douglas. She'd taken his surname and borne him a son, who was then two months old. John's profession was listed as shipwright. They married in 1848. The next census, in 1851, had them living in North Bishopwearmouth, also in Yorkshire. John listed his occupation now as commercial traveller. They were then recorded as having two very young daughters, so presumably the boy had died since the last census. When they emigrated to Victoria in January 1854, Margaret and John brought with them their girls and an infant son. Soon after they arrived, he died at the age of 10 months. This is the Margaret Douglas that I think best fits our pedestrian. Yet there are discrepancies. 
Contemporary newspaper reports said pedestrian Margaret was a native of Doncaster. Doncaster is in Yorkshire, but it's 100 miles south of where possible Margaret Douglas was born in Sunderland. This might have been a reporter's mistake, which was then repeated in the English press, which also took Australian newspaper extracts. Publications in both places said that Margaret had seven children, of whom three were still living. Ancestry.com.au records list possible Margaret as having had four children by 1854. Two dead, two still living. There is a chance that she'd had two other children who died off the record back in Yorkshire between censuses and that after arriving in Australia in 1854, she had another baby. As for her husband's profession as a pantomimist, possible Margaret's husband John listed his occupations as shipbuilder, then as commercial traveller. Was he also a theatre performer? There's no evidence to say that he was. But acting then was also something of a low profession, which could explain why he didn't list it, or indeed, he might not have been doing it professionally until after the 1851 census. Or that pantomime story could have been mistaken reporting that was subsequently parroted by other newspapers. Of course, John might have been husband to possible Margaret Douglas, who wasn't pedestrian Margaret Douglas. Victoria's population in 1859 was 530,000, of whom 195,000 were female. That's less than 10% of Victoria's population today, but large enough for there to have been a few adult Margaret Douglases. Of these, how many were middle-aged and from Yorkshire? Now, there was a woman of this name who, in the late 1850s and through the 1860s, racked up numerous convictions in Melbourne for drunkenness, prostitution, theft and vagrancy. This petty offender, Margaret Douglas, was however described as young, whereas pedestrian Margaret Douglas was described by the Melbourne press from the very first as being middle-aged. Of Victoria's Margaret Douglases, only two made the available colonial newspapers during the 1860s. Of those major Victorian papers digitised at Trove, there are 45 articles referencing them by their full names. The first half of the decade's mentions tend to be about the pedestrian Margaret Douglas and her exploits in London. The second half are about the petty offender and her exploits in Melbourne. For most of the 1870s, there are few mentions of any Margaret Douglases. A public notice in May 1876 identified a Margaret Douglas who'd been born in 1822 and who was then living in Melbourne as the executrix of a will with her husband William. Records, however, suggest that this Margaret Douglas had been born in Ireland. In October 1876, a Margaret Douglas was ordered by the court to pay a debt of just under £5. This could have been any one of the three Margaret Douglases. Then, in May 1879, a Margaret Douglas was taken into the Yarra Bend Lunatic Asylum in what the Herald newspaper called feeble condition because she was suffering, quote, paralysis peculiar to the insane. She died on the 6th of June and an inquest would find that the cause of death was chronic disease of the brain and congestion of her lungs. Her age... 46. That made it a pretty good bet that she was troubled, repeat petty offender, Margaret Douglas. It certainly wasn't Yorkshire-born Margaret Douglas. That's because on the 11th of May, less than a month earlier, 
the possible Margaret Douglas from Yorkshire, now 58 years old, the same age as pedestrian Margaret Douglas from Yorkshire, died of an opium overdose in a Melbourne hospital. The Bendigo Advertiser reported this Margaret Douglas had been in the habit of taking the drug. Via Ancestry, I got in touch with this Margaret Douglas's great-grandson. The family tree he manages includes the biographical information we've heard. He also posted a photo. Dated to 1866, it shows a small woman with a determined-looking face posing for the camera in her finery. I've used this photo as the image for this episode because I think these two Margaret Douglases were one and the same. That's speculative, but we're on firmer ground in assessing how pedestrianism progressed after Margaret Douglas. By 1878-79, the sport was experiencing its greatest popularity in the Northern Hemisphere. The Boston Daily Globe in March 1879 ran an article headlined Various Phases of the Pedestrian Mania in This Country and England. This piece detailed the large number of walking feats being undertaken by men and women in both countries. In Australia, there was also renewed interest at this time thanks to the efforts of W. Edwards, an English long-distance walking champion recently arrived in Victoria. In reporting that this Mr. Edwards was to walk 110 miles in 24 hours at the MCG, a writer for the Geelong Advertiser on the 21st of December 1878 reminded readers that such feats had actually been successfully undertaken 20 years earlier in Victoria. This was the same correspondent I mentioned in part one, who'd watched Alan McKean struggle through the end of his second 1,000-mile match at the Olympic Theatre. The Geelong Advertiser's writer remembered enough to point out in passing that despite Alan McKean's brave efforts, endurance pedestrianism actually at that time in Melbourne had been dominated by, quote, the fair sex. Quote, Owing, I suppose, to their greater powers of endurance in those small hours after midnight, which so severely tax the masculine frame. The writer said Alan McKean's 1,000 miles, quote, was succeeded by a Miss Beverly Howard, a gaunt female, then a cook in a metropolitan hotel, and a Mrs. Douglas. Both women performed the achievement, and subsequently the latter accomplished 500 half-miles in a like number of half-hours, which was attended with still greater difficulty as the times for rest were abbreviated. That was all he wrote. It's this article I stumbled upon while researching the Flying Pieman that led to this episode. The Geelong Advertiser mention is brief, but as far as I've found, it's also unique as a printed remembrance of Margaret Douglas and Beverly Howard. One of the major ways in which they were consciously written out of history was the publication in 1879 of J. Henneker Heaton's landmark Australian Dictionary of Dates and Men of the Time. This encyclopedic volume included a four-page chronology of colonial pedestrianism. To get an idea of where the author's interests lay, the entry on coal comprised a quarter of a page, while cricket merited just half a page. In J. Henneker Heaton's pedestrian chronology are found fact-heavy entries on Alan McKean's thousand-mile walks in 1858 and 1859, the latter also mentioning his failed attempt in Sydney. 
The book went to press in time to mention the very recent achievements of W. Edwards in 1878 and 1879. In the two decades between the feats of McKeon and Edwards, the chronology bulged with dozens of pedestrian achievements, no matter how historically trivial. Quote, Government Paddock, Melbourne, Hammondon Mills, 200 pounds, 200 yards, Hammond after a hard race, July 11, 1859. A race over 130 yards along Burke Street in October 1862 was also listed. So was a 120-yard race in Double Bay in June 1864. Remember, the title of J. Henniker Heaton's book was Australian Dictionary of Dates and Men of the Time. And he fulfilled that promise because women didn't get a single mention in the pedestrian chronology. Short sprints between gents were deemed noteworthy. Margaret Douglas and Beverly Howard's far greater achievements were not. It's not possible that this was an oversight. The Mills-Hammond race description I quoted was based on a report in Bell's Life in July 1859. While it was easy for later writers to miss newspaper reports of Margaret and Beverly's achievements, pedestrian-obsessed J. Henniker Heaton had not only lived through them, but he mined many articles for his book from newspapers that contained references to them. The knock-on effect of this was that when Geoffrey Blaney published his 2006 book, A History of Victoria, he wrote a couple of lines about Alan McKean's achievements, clearly using J. Henniker Heaton's book as his source. Had the pedestrian chronology included Margaret and Beverly, Geoffrey Blaney's History of Victoria might have included them and their far more impressive achievements. In 2007, the year after Geoffrey Blaney's book was published, Australia did see a stirring tribute to female pedestrianism and, in a roundabout way, to Margaret Douglas. Having discovered that she was related to Emma Sharp, who'd been inspired to walk her 1,000 miles in 1864 by Margaret Douglas, a 65-year-old Queen Bee and grandmother named Val Moran decided she'd replicate the feat on a two and a half kilometre circuit on the shores of Lake Burley Griffin in Canberra. Even though Val had only just walked her first marathon, she was now determined to do 1,000 miles to raise money for sudden infant death syndrome research and support. Val and her husband Peter knew how Sid's family suffered because they'd lost one of their own babies to the syndrome back in 1966. With Peter's support, Val planned her big walk for October and November 2007. Weeks before she was due to start, he was killed when his glider crashed. Though she was heartbroken, Val decided to go ahead anyway, believing it was what Peter would have wanted. She started each day at 6 in the morning. Val would walk 18 laps of her lake circuit for a total of 45 kilometres, which is a shade under 28 miles. She did this for two weeks, though she was suffering increasing pain. Seeking medical advice, Val learned that she'd sustained a double stress fracture of one hip. The specialist said that to heal, she'd have to stay off her feet for three months. Channeling the determination of female pedestrians from days gone by, Val wasn't giving up. She enlisted the support of the community to keep her going in a wheelchair. Friends, family and people from all over Canberra, including sports, media and political figures, answered Val's call and they turned up day in, 
day out for 28 days to chat with Val as they pushed her around the course in her wheelchair and kept her dream alive. After 42 days of this team effort, Val crossed the finish line, on her feet assisted by her three adult children. She'd raised $80,000 for SIDS awareness. Given that our first female pedestrian, Margaret Douglas, had lost four of her seven children, I can't help but think she would have been proud and pleased. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a rating and review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks again to Warren Fay for use of music from his Australian Bush Orchestra album, You can find this and his other albums at iTunes. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.